a young man named Giovanni Guasconti came very long ago from the more southern region of Italy to pursue his studies at the University University of Padua. Giovanni, Giovanni, who had but a scanty supply of gold ducats in his pocket, took lodgings in a high and gloomy chamber of an old edifice, which looked not unworthy to have been the palace of a Paduan noble, and which, in fact, exhibited over its entrance the armorial bearings of a family long since extinct. The young stranger, who was not unstudied in the great poem of his country, recollected that one of the ancestors of this family, and perhaps an occupant of this very mansion, had been pictured by Dante as a partaker of the immortal agonies of his inferno. These reminiscences and associations, together with the tendency to heartbreak natural to a young man for the first time out of his native sphere, caused Giovanni to sigh heavily as he looked around the desolate and ill-furnished apartment. Lightning recap. In Rappuccini's Daughter by Nathaniel Hawthorne. That girl is poison. You you've got a little time. We've got a little podcast. This is short story short podcast. I am Bell Biv and DeVoe here today with Dr. Freeze, who actually wrote that song. <laughs> <laughs> I did not know you were a scholar of the uh, Motown Philly arts. Uh, this is actually, to be more specific, the uh, New Jack Swing movement of the early 1990s, which I did not at all have to look up because I was like eight. I was in high school. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> so today we're not just talking about old school jams. But we're also talking about a hella old school jam in the world of the foundational 19th century science fiction. Hey, Christy, what what story should we have read? We should have read, if our printer worked correctly, Rappuccini's Daughter by Nathaniel Hawthorne, which was first published in 1844. That's right. And this is one of those stories that I read first in high school well okay i first read the first and last pages of in high school <laughs> you just summed up so many people's high school english experience <laughs> yeah and i still managed to get an a on the test um but still uh, summing up <laughs> very good at scantron but uh it's one that i really became more aware of because of an anthology called future perfect by a guy who is dead now. No, he's still alive. I actually interviewed him. Um, <laughs> wow. Okay. Uh, I feel sorry for this uh, gentleman. Well, it was via email, but um, <laughs> the uh, the anthologies of 19th century science fiction stuff. So there's Poe, there's Twain, uh, but there this story appears and is one of the ones that really gets me thinking that when the trope of the 
mad scientist with the beautiful daughter began. It was mm. this story. And I love that. <laughs> and what a beautiful way to start it. And what a wonderful and age appropriate. And when I say age appropriate, I mean appropriate to its time way to start it. Because poison is so just entrenched in this era, especially as a woman's weapon. Um, arsenic, cyanide, potomane, et cetera, et cetera. I could go on. And hilariously, this is this is really funny. Um, on my other podcast, Old Timey Crimey, we dig into historical crimes. Literally, while I was reading this, I got uh, an email pitching us a book that we could review that is about woman poisoners throughout the, the century or the centuries, oh. rather. So uh, yeah, we'll we'll be doing that, and uh, since it's a book, I, I guess I'll I'll plug it it over here whenever we review it over on the the, the other podcasts. Uh, but you know everything's in early stages right now. But it was just hilarious to me. I was like, of all the times, like everything's poison, poison, poison right now. I'm a little scared to eat or drink anything. Me too, but that's only because I read the jungle. Um, <laughs> this story does something very slowly. <laughs> that science fiction had, had, even up to that point, been exploring. It's this idea of, can we bend the will of nature to our own, I don't want to say benefit, but benefit. Um, I just don't like the word benefit. It knows what it did. Um, and we're, we're given this wonderfully, I would say, naive gentleman. <laughs> Giovanni, who is a, he doesn't feel like he's well-rounded as a modern character. As a character of 19th century fiction, particularly mid-19th century fiction, he does feel pretty, pretty standard. I mean. He yeah, naive is definitely a correct, very apt word to use for Giovanni. Uh, I think it's, it's very appropriate for Hawthorne to start out the first three words, a young man. We're really in the, the correct lane here by starting out that way. He's very young. He's untested. He has not very much experience with the world. And he can be, he's an easy mark. He really is. He's a very easy mark. And the whole entire world is looking at him and can see that. Mm -hmm. and yeah he's got meat written all over his face um mm -hmm. he's a small town boy living in a lonely world <laughs> but what we're given is one i find it interesting that uh, hawthorne chose padua and padua as a setting of course is most famous for uh many of the works of shakespeare took place in padua or near padua or may mention a padua uh i believe was it Taming of the Shrew that took place in Padua? I can't remember. Um, but there are definitely long literary connections to the city, even more so than somewhere like Verona or uh, Fianza, any of those sort of cities that we sort of have in this literary cloud of, you know, established memory uh, literarily. So one, we have this sort of grounded in a place that is of a known realm. But at this time, you also have to remember stories like 
that dealt with themes within science fiction and fantasy. One, fantasy stories were just considered either fairy tales or just myth that was being written down. But science fiction in particular was considered a mainstream fiction. It really wasn't until after the Civil War that we started to see a division happen. And really not until about the works of Jules Verne that we saw a bigger divide where it actually, you know, whole magazines could be established for that one genre. And here, definitely, Hawthorne is writing within a mimetic world, I guess. And and on that, uh, I would like to add that I really do feel like he pulls in some little aspects of, of fantasy and of mythology and fairy tale, especially with this setting very much has the feel of a fairy tale setting. Um, and then those those feel those those aspects of the fairy tale setting, they go dark fairy tale as we go on. But you've got this lush, amazing, beautiful garden. What better setting for a fairy tale? You know, like there definitely should be fairies flit, flitting about here with their beautiful little wings. And it's just it's so beautiful and so richly described that you can't help but feel like you're there. This is a great story for midsummer, let me tell you. Uh, it's not hard to feel your, yourself there when you're sitting outside on a, you know, early summer's evening reading this. Mm-hmm. So you have that aspect there, which I feel was done very, very intentionally to ground the reader and make them feel more comfortable as we add these other aspects that are about, like you said, bending nature to our will. Mm-hmm. And there are also a lot of allusions here, particularly one there's sort of in the first couple of pages, uh, you know, quote, was this garden then the Eden of the present world? And this man with such a perception of harm in what his own hand caused to grow, was he the atom? Uh, Just right there in the very beginning, we're getting allusions to the Garden of Eden. We're getting these connections to the large backlog, basically, (laughs) of uh, literary fiction. And of course, the Bible being nonfiction um, in all of its forms, perfect in every way. But uh, I think that (laughs) when we're getting the, the idea, you know, it is the iconic setting. And you can think of, again, coming back to the Bard, how many of his plays took place in gardens? Mm-hmm. Oh, many. Uh, he said, arms akimbo. Um, the story goes in a very, very different way. And it's actually a different way than it should have if it were being written by a modern writer. A modern writer tells this story. It is a subtly hinted at mystery. Here it is a, I would say, shellacked upon mystery. <laughs> yes, subtlety was not really some some fiction back in the 19th century had it. Not a lot. I would say subtlety wasn't really the done thing in mm-hmm. fiction. Uh we really liked to drive the point home and then pound it in with a sledgehammer. And then uh, I don't even know what you do beyond a sledgehammer, but find find more tools to do that with. <laughs> um, we really like to work hard on that. Uh, yeah, it it is definitely 
a bit heavy handed in that sort of 19th century lay it on thick style. But I mean, we can have some appreciation for that, as uh, as I know we both do, us being, you know, the English majory types. I don't know how other people feel about that, but it's all done so lushly and so richly that you can't <laughs> help but admire it. So I, th- I think a lot of that, uh, it could sag and it could droop, but the style lifts it back up. Mm-hmm. And I read a lot of the fiction of the 19th century and a lot of Hawthorne, and this is by far my favorite Hawthorne piece, because uh, everything else I've ever read is almost un- unreadable. Uh, it's just so, <laughs> so it's like wading through molasses. Uh, I know there are a couple of Hawthorne pieces that I've liked, but I honestly can't tell you which. I'd have to like rifle through his his writings before I could find. But I know there's a couple here and there that have, have been good for me, but I mm-hmm. name titles are escaping me. Yeah, I think here, one of the reasons why this works so well is that his lushness of language, even for the time, uh, he was not a, he was not one to mince words uh, or cut a single word, but he, (laughs) he definitely took a very, I would say, fairly simplistic story and expanded it out into the full, every corner of that story with this beautiful, rich prose. I mean, one of my favorite parts, which I can actually read all of on this very strange printed copy. Um, Gausconti returned to his lodging somewhat heated with the wine he had quaffed and which caused his brain to swim with strange fantasies in reference to Dr. Rappuccini and the beautiful Beatrice. On his way, happening to pass by a florist, he bought a fresh bouquet of flowers. I just, but the best part about that part, that one of the reasons why that one had to me, he was literally bringing Coles to Newcastle. <laughs> exactly, yeah. I mean, it's like, this is one of those little little pieces, like you said, of the uh, naivete of Giovanni. It's like, what do you, what do you get to someone who's always in a garden? flowers he must love flowers it's gotta be <laughs> like bringing the barista coffee <laughs> although i do know a barista that that works um i mean they do tend to enjoy coffee and it is nice to not have to make it that's right uh yeah one of my better dates started with me bringing a barista coffee uh there you go so you've done it <laughs> You know, you've brought Coles to Newcastle. Well, technically, yes. (laughs) What people don't realize about that saying is the guy who did actually physically bring coal to Newcastle because there was a strike made a fortune doing it. Well, there you go. So maybe sometimes it's a good idea to bring coal to Newcastle or bring coffee to a barista. And that is what I'm going to say from now on. That's another shirt. (laughs) There you go. Yeah. I had uh, a little a little bit on uh, okay, so we haven't talked very much about the actual Rappuccini of the title, so that would be uh, our Beatrice's father, and um, this is hilarious because the way that this worked out, I read this section uh, fairly early on in the story, and I'll read you the excerpt, and this is how Rappuccini behaves around the flowers. 
On the contrary, he avoided their actual touch or the direct inhaling of their odors with a caution that impressed Giovanni most disagreeably, for the man's demeanor was that of one walking among malignant influences, such as savage beasts or deadly snakes or evil spirits, which, should he allow them one moment of license, would wreak upon him some terrible fatality. Okay, so just literally like yesterday... I saw this thread posted by uh, one Dr. Suzanne Moss on Twitter, whose last name is hilariously apt. Um, and I'm just going to read an excerpt from her, her Twitter thread. It's about this plant that's in isolation, even though it's actually in a poison garden, a garden of poisonous plants, and it still needs to be in isolation. And she says, if you touch it, the sensation is likened to being burned and electrocuted at the same time, and the effects can persist for years. It's called Dendrosnides morioides. I'm really sorry if I mispronounced that. Also known as the stinging tree or a gimpy gimpy plant. Guess where it's native to, Chris? Australia. Yep, yep, yep. You got it. And not one you want to get on the wrong side of. The plant is covered in hairs called trichomes, which are like little hypodermic needles. Uh, there's more to it than that, and it's all terrifying and scary. So if you want to read a little bit more about that, probably just like go on Twitter and search Poison Garden. Um, but yeah, I read that and I was like, oh, like, why is everything about poison stuff? And why is that exactly like how that man was walking around the garden? Like he was just surrounded by gimpy gimpies <laughs> or jimpy jimpies or however you say it. Yeah. <laughs> I love this also brings up the fact that poison gardens were actually a thing. And we now know there are two very famous ones in the U.S. and one in England uh, that are, you know, basically tourist places. But it was actually a very common for people to have sections of their garden that were specifically designed to have, you know, various nightshades, uh, foxglove, things like that. And that was a really sort of important, like, aspect. It was to show that you had some sort of dominance over death that you could grow something that was fatal and keep it alive. And apparently it is very hard to keep some of those uh, flowers alive because literally they will eat themselves. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny, actually. (laughs) Yeah. And then we have the lovely Beatrice. Ah, yes, Beatrice. I love... Now, first off, every girl I had a crush on in... Eighth through thirty-second grade, uh, may must have somehow taken her entire damn vocabulary and way of speaking from this story because there's a single paragraph that I swoon for. So she said stuff like "Chris, Chris, why tarriest thou? Come down." Give me thy breath, my sister, exclaimed Beatrice, for I am faint with common air. And give me this flower of thine, which I separate with gentlest fingers from the stem and place it close beside my heart. Your lady friends talk like that? I hung out with a lot of goth chicks. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, all right. All right, that makes sense. That makes sense. Um, This is just, it's, the language i know that he was not writing specifically to make her seem magically speaky he's not writing the manic pixie dream girl 
who's not particularly manic. Um, <laughs> but the language works so well that you could not write this with a more minimal style and still have this sort of broader impact of her presentation of herself. I mean, I picture her just right from that moment. And it's not difficult to picture anything in this story because it's all right there. <laughs> and her her talk, her way of talking is, uh, does have a Shakespearean fashion to it. Um, it's mm-hmm. definitely more old fashioned than how almost everybody else talks. Although I have to say, calling professors your worship. A couple of years ago, back when I was professing, I could have gone for that. <laughs> uh, I also love how we get snippets of what the story is. You know, the insect that falls, fa- that he says falls faint at her feet. Hmm. Uh, this idea of that, you know, little pieces just here and there. And then we're hammered over the head. <laughs> What's interesting is that I, I remember in class, we had a huge argument, uh, which was always great because it meant we only did one thing all day, uh, over what is Beatrice supposed to be? Is she supposed to be the terrible place upon wretch? The mis or the mis that what do you call what do we say? The misshaped monster who was the unexpected after after effect of Rappuccini? Or is she actually some sort of next evolution? Ultimately, it's is she someone to be feared, someone to be revered, or both? Honestly, I know you're really pulling for, for this to be science fiction, but I do wonder if Nathaniel Hawthorne meant for her to be like Eve or the apple. Interesting. I could make arguments for either. I think I could make stronger arguments for the apple, but I wouldn't know until I sat down and tried to pound out a 20 page paper on one or the other or both. And do that. We'll put it in the show notes. <laughs> Sure, I'll add it to my to-do list, which is not long at all uh, and is not encroaching onto the third page of my bullet journal. <laughs> Hold on, let me uh, let me get chat GPT on this and we'll we'll make do. <laughs> oh God. Please don't say those words to me ever again. Like that whole <laughs> sentence, just strike it entirely from your vocabulary. No, but uh, (laughs) (laughs) we have very different opinions on AI, you and me, (laughs) very different. And we're just going to have to learn to live with that. (laughs) Yes, I accept that our our technological overlords are our betters. And And I just kind of scroll past your tweets and I just just tense up on my mouse for a second. And I say, no, Christy, just move past it. Just move past it. Your friends, your co-hosts. I haven't tweeted in almost a year liar no it's all been it's all been ai a very complicated ai all right anyhow moving on to save the friendship (laughs) (laughs) yeah rep it's interesting who do you place in in sort of this hierarchy is one is rappuccini a hero or a villain 
Okay. So we're talking just like, are we talking about the hierarchy of if Beatrice is like Eve or the snake or, or, or sorry, the apple rather? Yeah. What does Eve represent? I think. Okay. So, all right. So if Beatrice is, let's say she's the apple, then um, that would make Rappuccini is the snake. And it's almost like Giovanni is Eve and Rappuccini's trying to get Eve to bite the apple. Okay. My thought. Mm -hmm. Rappuccini is God. Okay. Giovanni is Adam. Okay. But Beatrice is still the apple. Oh, interesting. And I would say that inexperience is his Eve. <gasps> the idea of love as, as the Eve, as the one that is tempting him. Oh, that's great. I didn't even think to make like a quality or something like that into one of the figures in our setup here very much so i think that's a great thing hold on one sec mm -hmm. but uh i think one of the interesting things here that i missed was what if all of it is in someone's head no wait <laughs> <laughs> it was all a dream <laughs> i think giovanni plays plays a is the one who is affected upon, of course. But who is the one that is affecting? Is it Rappuccini or is it Beatrice herself? I think it's I think it's Rappuccini. Rappuccini is he's he's the mastermind. He's turning all the wheels and the dials and pressing all the buttons here. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that does make sense, and I. I like the idea of, of a character being placed within a, oh no, I've been locked in. <laughs> <laughs> I like the idea of a character being locked into a trap that may not be a trap. That it is a trap that lays within the understanding of the human condition. And I think it's not difficult to understand Giovanni. Mm -hmm. And I think that really plays, that's why the whole story happens. Because, and the question is, is he being played or does it just sort of happen to him? And I think he's being played, but. <laughs> I agree. He's, he's being played. Um, but I think Beatrice is being played too. And uh, I think there could have been another ending if, they had both tried to be a little bit more understanding, but they're both so young uh, that temper comes before understanding. Yes. And I think that is beautiful. Thank you. In a uh, very, very heavy eye makeup and a swirling black velvet sort of way. I have my goth moments too. Despite the fact that I'm wearing a red t-shirt. 
And I am even mascaraless, it being pretty much the only makeup I ever wear anyhow. <laughs> uh, I don't go out unless I'm wearing a full pancake. I don't. I won't do it. <laughs> it just happen. Yes. But this is, a, this is a story that is foundational to science fiction and fantasy and horror even. And there are elements of all three in it, which is oh, great. Sure. And I love every character in this you can make an argument for as being foundational to a type of character in everything we see in genre fiction. Yeah, this is, this is I would say, a very archetypal story. Mm -hmm. Archetypal. I like that story. Like Captain mm -hmm. Caveman. Um, <laughs> Johnny Quest. <laughs> <laughs> I love that Beatrice, I've, I've seen other analysis where it compares Beatrice to... Uh, What's her name from Hamlet? Ophelia. Ophelia. And I Oh no, I was just commiserating. <laughs> I see what you did there. Yeah. Uh, don't again. But um, <laughs> but I don't see her I don't see her as that that sort of character. I see her more as a one a full participant in the story but I actually see her more as a participant in the setting. I like that. I like that a lot. Yeah. She's almost, she's entwined in the setting, the, the flowers and the vines and, and all the bushes and everything They're they're wrapped around her and pulling her into the garden. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And I love that. I think that's a, I just love how beautiful that is. The idea that she's one with the poisons. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, like Belle Biv DeVoe said, that girl is poison. Never trust a big button, a smile. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I knew it would happen. I knew it. Correct. <laughs> Got anything else on this one there, Christy? Uh, no, I think that is about all I have. I think we really, uh, we... We did a good job with this one. I'm feeling like we are Rappuccini's daughtered out. We drank deep of the cup. <laughs> the poison hey, cup. Hey, Christy. Yes? Let's say we read another story. What oh, story? we never do that. What story should we read? We should, just for funsies, read Day the Terrible by Brent Wal Baldwin. Published on flashfictiononline.com. And it's brand new. It's coming out this month. So, hooray. Hooray. Yes. Well, until that time, this hath been Short Story. Short Podcast. Sure it is. Mm -hmm.